of all the podcasts that I listen to, my very favorite, the one that I enjoy without fail the most, is Pop Culture Happy Hour, which is created under the auspices of NPR, National Public Radio. And the host of that podcast is none other than Linda Holmes. Linda Holmes, however, is joining me on the morning show, not at least primarily to talk about uh, the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast or the other work that she does for NPR as a pop culture correspondent, but to talk about her wonderful novel that has just been published by Valentine called Ebby Drake Starts Over. And it is a marvelous novel, which I have just finished and uh, which I am so excited to talk with her about. Linda Holmes actually began her professional life, I'm pretty sure, as an attorney, but eventually left that life to become uh, a critic and uh, eventually was hired by NPR, where she has done distinguished work that I'm sure you have enjoyed. And certainly she has made contributions to all kinds of different uh, public radio programs, and perhaps you have seen her work on things like the website Television Without Pity and in many, many other places as well. And again, this new novel, which I believe is her first novel, called Evie Drake Starts Over, is published by Ballantine Books. And Linda Holmes, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much. Thank you for the kind words. I meant every one of them. I wonder if you could uh, maybe help explain something. Uh, If I got everything right there, I think you probably would have corrected me if I hadn't. Uh, So you started out as an attorney, but you left that to become a cultural critic, and now you're a published novelist. I mean, all three of those endeavors certainly involve the wielding of words, but I'm wondering if there is any other sort of through line behind all of these different professional endeavors that you want to draw for us. I really think that the through line is is writing and how much I've always loved writing. Um, and I even when I was an attorney, I would find kind of side writing projects. Um, you know, if there was something going around the office, like come up with a new name to call this bunch of publications we're going to do. I would always be the one trying to come up with some, you know, kind of funny name to call things or something like that. I've just always loved words and loved writing. And I think that it kind of has taken me in a variety of different directions, but I think it all goes back to the fact that even, even since I was a little kid, I just have always loved to write. Very good. I want to ask you something about the book that may come as a bit of a surprise to you. Uh, I love the novel and I'm not a big fan of fiction. So when I love a novel, uh, that is extravagant praise in and of itself. (laughs) Uh, But one of the things I want to say is, although your book is so entertaining and at times very poignant, the place where I actually had a lump in my throat and got tears in my eyes was when I read the acknowledgments. And and it's so interesting because it's not as though in those acknowledgments you thank your beloved great-grandmother who dreamt of being a novelist but died of mm-hmm. tuberculosis before, you know, dot, dot, dot. There's, there's actually nothing like that in those acknowledgments. In fact, in many ways, you are thanking, in a sense, ordinary people for playing ordinary roles in your life, and yet together somehow they are a fabric of support that have been really important to you and made all the difference. Um, I wonder, first of all, if you could just say a word about uh, those acknowledgments and the, yeah. the wide array of people who really made it a a profound difference uh, in you being so successful with this first novel? I think one of the things that happens, you know, I, I as you can probably tell from describing the number of careers and jobs um, that I've had, 
I am in my kind of late 40s, mid to late 40s now. And um, so I come to this as somebody who's done a lot of different things. And I think when you've done a lot of things, you invariably have a, a, a wide range of um, <clears throat> a wide range of things that you've done and ways, as you say, that people in ordinary um, moments of your life have really helped you and made it possible for you to do things. And my, my path here, because it's not linear, it's not a matter of, you know, here's the person who opened door one and I walked through door one and went to door two. And it, it doesn't kind of go in that kind of direction. It's people who, um, it's people who made it possible for me to, you know, start to write in the first place. It's people who made it possible when I was in high school for me to to learn to express myself better and to to kind of just get through being a high school kid. I mean, I some of the people who are thanked in the acknowledgments are teachers of mine from high school and um, and later uh, later on. And and then I've just had a, a wonderful variety of friends in different places and people who've read my work. And I've just been incredibly lucky to have so many people who have been so helpful and, 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 um, and loving to me in many ways. And I think the acknowledgements of a book, it's this great moment where you feel like this is my opportunity to give all of these people um, some well-deserved credit for the role that they they play in allowing me to do all this. Hmm. Your opening line of the acknowledgments is, I am blessed with more people to thank than I can possibly mention, but I am determined to do my best. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if it's not too personal, one of the uh, moments in the acknowledgments that uh, intrigued me was when you thank one of your NPR colleagues, one of your colleagues actually from the podcast, uh, and you thank him for his enthusiasm for the book, which you say meant so very much to me that it got me through several awful convulsions of doubt. Yeah. Uh, would you be willing to just say a word about these convulsions of doubt? Of course. Uh, I'm of just kind of curious about that. I didn't really know when I started writing this whether I could finish a novel, whether it was worth finishing a novel. And I had shared it with a couple of people as I was going along. But I think, um, you know, the closer you get to the possibility of beginning to share it with strangers and, you know, I'm going to look for an agent. So I'm going to share it with people who don't know me and don't owe me anything. I think it does. It can create these very tense and scary moments of really making yourself very, very vulnerable in a way that if you're settled into a job that you feel like you're good at, is not necessarily part of your day-to-day that much. And so it was really important for me that the, the, the person that I was talking about there was Glenn uh, Weldon, my friend who's on the podcast with me, who I don't really think of as necessarily a reader of kind of what this would be classified maybe as like women's fiction or beach read or something like that. And it's not what I would necessarily associate him with. And so when I gave it to him, he's a very... Um, extraordinary writer and also a person who's done like the Iowa Writers Workshop and all these very kind of prestigious things. And so when I gave it to him, it was uh, it was scary, sort of. And um, and he gave me some really wonderful feedback. And it was so meaningful because it really did help me think, OK, well, maybe this is something that I should do and can do. Right. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Weldon is a real sci-fi guy, science fiction, huge Aquaman expert and this mm-hmm. and that. And all these other things come to mind that do not align with the, the, the certainly the flavor and, or intent of this book. So in a sense, right. I suppose he was stepping away from his own personal preferences uh, 
uh, to to receive this and uh, and share his thoughts with you. And fortunately, those were apparently very enthusiastic thoughts. Yeah, it was it was it was lovely and so helpful and and um, feedback from people that you really admire is always always um, very helpful in these moments. I called this your first novel. It's certainly your first published novel. Is yeah. this the first time you have attempted to write a novel? It's not. The f- I mean, it's the first time that I've seriously attempted to finish one, for sure. Um, I think that I, like a lot of people, have had little beginnings of things that are probably in in drawers uh, somewhere, but rarely anything that would get past maybe 20 pages. I mean, just really... Um, little beginnings of things. This was the first one that I really tried to push through and see if I could actually finish it. And it is the first one I've ever finished. Wow. How much concerted education in the craft of writing have you had? Uh, I mean, like, for instance, when you began college, was it as an English major? or, uh, or... No, no. Um, I was a government major in college, which was more connected to to the part of me that wound up going to law school. I was very nervous about um, about the possibility of creative writing when I went to college, and so I was sort of too I was too nervous about it to really put my writing in front of people at that stage of my life. So it was always something that I did um, more informally. I never really studied. Uh, formally studied creative writing or or fiction. But I think, you know, the odd thing is I've spent many years writing criticism and many years, uh, and I spent many years studying legal writing. And so even though it's different, you do learn from those things, how to express yourself. You learn how to be clear from legal writing. You learn how to make an argument and how to kind of make things um, make sense when put together. So my my education in writing is more a kind of amalgamation of a bunch of different sorts of writing experience that I've had, but not a lot of formal education in, in creative writing. Interesting. We're speaking with Linda Holmes from National Public Radio, who uh, in this interview is wearing a different hat as a published novelist. Her first novel called Evie Drake Starts Over. That is what we are primarily talking about today. You certainly know her work from NPR and maybe in particular from uh, her work as host of uh, NPR's very popular uh, pop culture uh, podcast, The Pop Culture Happy Hour. Um, Linda Holmes, one of the things that strikes me about the novel is that within the significant characters and, and even when we total up most of the insignificant characters as well, there just aren't any awful people here. I think that's right. There's no real, yeah, there's no real, um, you know, there are no real villains in this story. And that's always, I think, been one of the things that I find most interesting about life. And I think even some of the people who could wind up being in that situation, you know, Evie, who's the main character in the book, was raised by her father. Her mother hasn't been very present for her, and she definitely has some struggles in that relationship. But I think even that, um, you know, her mother's not a bad person. <laughs> She's just someone who hasn't been present and who perhaps has made some some mistakes. But I don't think there's anybody in the book who I feel like, um, you know, I feel like this person is just a, an irredeemable monster. It's just not that interesting to me to write about people like that because you wind up, um, you wind up just kind of waiting either for them to 
get their comeuppance uh, or not. And it's not a terribly satisfying thing for this style of, of story, I think. Right. And and I, as I reflect on, on why I liked your novel so much, I think that's one of the things that I really found truly refreshing. And I suspect that it's relatively uncommon in fiction, not that I read a lot of fiction, but certainly when we think about fiction as it plays out on television screens and movie screens, uh, it's almost sort of a preposterous notion of -hmm. of creating a a riveting story in which there aren't, in which it isn't peppered with kind of distasteful people just for the sake of sort of texture. did you re- did you receive any resistance, for instance, from from those uh, from your publisher working with you as you uh, finished crafting this novel? I mean, were you ever uh, was there ever lobbying for you to bring that element into it? No, I mean, quite the opposite. I think everybody who read this book um, from when it was a, a manuscript and it's definitely changed a lot since then. But I think everybody who's read it understood that my interest was in conflicts that are more emotional and interior as opposed to conflicts that are from facing down some terrible person or um, some, you know, trying to solve some vicious crime or stop some terrible, uh, terrible monster. And I think, um, you know, everybody has a different idea of what a riveting story is. And I think that people who write, uh, you know, there are definitely people who write wonderful stories about crime and, and, stories that do have much more clear bad actors and they're wonderful stories. It's just not what I particularly wanted to write. And so I think the trick is then how do you create a conflict that feels important when it's, when it involves entirely people who are mostly doing their best and that that's tricky, but it is, it is possible. And I think that's often the kind of conflict that, um, that most of us encounter in our, our real lives. Hmm. I think that's part of what makes this novel feel so authentic. It's as though we are peeking into the lives of of real people experiencing real life, even if it's uh, the fact that they're experiencing things that we've never experienced and probably never will experience in terms of the specifics. But at the heart of it, it feels like real life. In particular, your title character, Evie Drake, uh, a woman who has, uh, in a sense, experienced some brokenness uh, in her life. Tell our listeners a little bit about uh, that sort of crucial moment in her life that uh, brings her to the place we, uh, when, when we first meet her. Yeah. Well, Evie is um, a woman who got married when she was quite young. She got married to her high school sweetheart and really first serious boyfriend. And they have lived, he became a doctor and they've lived in uh, the town in Maine where, where she grew up. And she's unhappy because uh, he's just unkind to her. And he turns out to be not the person she was hoping. And so she's unhappily married and eventually decides that she's going to leave. But just at the moment when she's preparing to leave, um, she learns that he has died. And so she is kind of interrupted in her effort to take her life in her own hands. And now to some degree, She's in this very difficult situation where because other people didn't really know she was unhappy, they now expect her to respond to his death in a certain way um, that isn't how she's feeling. So she's kind of stuck with a combination of of loss and guilt and um, having kept a lot of secrets from people that she's close to. Do you have any recollection of 
how this intriguing idea first sprang into being for you? I think that what I was interested in was the notion that when people die, they're very often flattened into um, something that is maybe even more than the best version of themselves. And, mm. and it's, they can be sometimes remembered in a way that deprives the people who knew them of a real reckoning with the relationship that's at issue. And I think that's kind of what she's dealing with is that when somebody dies, the, the urge is to encourage everyone to kind of let go of any negative um, aspects that may have existed in the relationship. And those are all things that she really didn't have a chance to reckon with yet. And so she has to kind of figure out what do you do when you don't have the opportunity to get the resolution you were hoping for. Interesting. And, of course, we're talking about someone that is her husband, uh, Tim Drake, uh, a doctor much admired in the community. And, and at one point you describe him as someone who was uh, incredibly charming uh, to everybody who didn't have to live with him. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and we think about how that probably is is a description of a fair number of people uh, who we might even know. Uh, who save, yeah. in a sense, their worst selves uh, f- for the people who, with whom they live. Yes, I think very much so. I think there are a lot of people who have um, a very different public and private self, and sometimes that's neutral. They're just different publicly and privately. And sometimes it is that they are significantly kinder in in public or kinder in private. It just depends on the the person. And, and I think, yes, I think there are people who are in relationships with people who are widely admired and, and whose personal and private behavior is not well known. Uh, if you don't mind, I want to read a brief paragraph that I think uh, speaks uh, to Evie Drake and where she finds herself in life, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. uh, and I don't remember now who she is speaking with at this point in time, but at, at she's talking about the what it feels like to be a widow. And she has just in in the last day or two sort of called herself a widow for the first time or maybe heard somebody refer to her as a a widow. And she says, I started thinking about it as a word, widow. It's strange that there has to be a word for a lady who was married to someone who died. But it's real. It's me. I am a widow right now, right this minute. And honestly, I'm a widow all the time. I'm a widow everywhere I go, which explains why I feel like one constantly. I looked it up in the dictionary, though, and if I get married again, I'm not a widow anymore, even though I still married him and he's still gone. Uh, she starts to un- untangle that word mm-hmm. widow and the way mm-hmm. it attaches itself to her, and only when yeah. she remarries would she, in a sense, see that status removed. Uh, mm mm-hmm. Did anything in particular prompt you to, as the author, to think about the word widow in this way? I don't think so. I mean, I think probably when I was um, describing the book, I think widow is a a term that um, a lot of people don't necessarily think about when they think about young, maybe younger women, which she is. She's in her 30s when he dies. And so I started to think about what that word carries with it and and that it is such a heavy, loaded sort of um, identifier that, as she notes, it really identifies her through 
through that loss and that relationship, and it kind of sticks to her in a way that, um, for example, if she had been able to get divorced, yes, she would be divorced, but she wouldn't necessarily carry a label that would mean that she would be expected to identify with that relationship indefinitely, which is how she feels about being a widow. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, into the life of this woman named Evie Drake comes uh, someone else who is broken in a very different way, Uh, a professional baseball player by the name of Dean Tenney. Uh, Explain to our listeners what makes him a broken figure at the point that we meet him. Yeah, so Dean um, is a guy who was a pitcher for a very good pitcher for the Yankees. And then he came down with a case of the yips. And if you're not familiar with the yips, the yips basically is the descriptor for a condition in which um, some sort of athlete, it's usually applied to athletes, just abruptly loses the ability to do whatever it is that they're good at. It originally came from golf. It also comes up in, um, it can come up in basketball and other sports, but it also comes up quite a bit in baseball, very often with um, throwing arms of either pitchers or or fielders. And so he has had, um, he has suddenly completely lost the ability to pitch and has kind of publicly imploded in front of the city of New York, which is never something that you want to see happen to yourself. Hmm. And he happens to be uh, a good friend, uh, I think since childhood or college, I forget, mm-hmm. but a good friend mm-hmm. of... Evie's best friend, a young man named Andy, and it is Mm -hmm. Andy's idea that Dean Tenney should come to this small community in Maine uh, where where Andy and Evie each live, and uh, he is thinking this will be a a good place for him to go and, in a sense, recover from all that he's been through. Right, and sort of hide and get some privacy in a place that's smaller and quieter and this is where people are not going to bother him quite so much. I'm kind of curious, this scenario is actually so promising, so fertile. Did it spring into being quite effortlessly, or in the uh, first iterations of this was Evie the, the, the widow of a lawyer who drowned and, uh, and was uh, Dean Tenney a professional golfer, and uh, is this, was this originally in Minot, North Dakota? I mean, how did this framework take shape? Did it take shape fairly effortlessly? It came, it sort of was, was I think, three ideas that, that came together that all began separately, one of which was that the part of Maine where the book is set is a place that's really very special to me where my family used to vacation quite a bit when I was young. So I love that part of kind of mid-coast Maine. It's around, if you're familiar with that area, Camden and Rockland and places like that. So I really wanted to write a book that was set there. Um, And I also had this idea, as I said, about wanting to write a book about the guilt of grief that you can't quite process, um, because in some way it it doesn't progress the way that that either other people think it will or that you think it will. And then I did have a a specific um, thought that I wanted to write about a player with the yips, just because I think it's so interesting. So those things all started off as as different ideas, and and certainly the story of the baseball player and the story of the widow began as different ideas that I was kind of tossing around in my head. And then it occurred to me that they they had 
some, as you say, brokenness in common and, and maybe that their stories would speak to each other in an interesting way if you put them in the same house. Right. I want to say that one of the things I really appreciate about the novel is the, let's say, the respectful tone with which you describe this small community in Maine. Mm -hmm. Because I think uh, it's very tempting, and maybe sometimes it works really well, uh, to make uh, a small community and the people who live in it really quirky uh, in a way that I think can be in some ways, a thinly veiled insult. <laughs> and I just appreciate I that you didn't right. succumb to that. Well, you know, these this part of Maine, one of the things I really like about spending time in this part of Maine, especially if you can be there in the, in the uh, not the heart of the tourist season, so maybe in the fall. Um, one of the things I really like being in that part of Maine is that they are, um, it is beautiful and it is picturesque and you will have visitors at all times of year who are there to look at the beautiful water and kind of duck into the the beautiful little shops and things. But at the same time, those are all still, those are all working towns. And when you look out on the water, you look at a lot of lobster boats and other things, which are working boats. It's like looking at trucks in New York. It's, they are, um, it is a, they are not entirely tourist towns that run completely on the tourist economy. They still have a lot of working um, lobster fishing and other other things going on. Um, so, so one of the things I wanted to do is make sure that it didn't collapse into entirely a kind of a tourist fantasy, but that it's still people who have jobs and do real things. Absolutely. Uh, we've already touched on the fact that a really important character is that of Andy, a mm-hmm. dear friend of Evie Drake, also a very close friend of the baseball player, Dean Tenney. Yes. And without Andy, we wouldn't have Evie and uh, Dean <laughs> ultimately coming together. I want That's to right. just uh, ask you about the, the, the way in which you have, uh, in a sense, painted for us this friendship between Evie and Andy. And I suspect that a lot of people read your book and just feel envious of this friendship, uh, albeit uh, a friendship that is challenged at a couple of points in the book. But yeah. but mostly it is just such a deep, satisfying friendship in so many ways. Um, what did you think about as you, in a sense, created these two characters and the friendship between them? I think... It is a it is a, a sort of a it's a longstanding complaint of mine about fiction, whether it's written fiction like novels or even television and film, that there's often not as much respect as I wish there were for the deep and important role that friendships play in the lives of adults. And I think the more you see people who stay single for longer maybe get divorced at some point in their lives. I do think that for some people, their friendships are some of the most stable and lasting relationships that they have. And so I really wanted to write a a very close, um, bonded, but formed in adulthood. Because although although, um, Andy and Dean have been friends since they were kids, Andy and Evie met when they were adults. And they became friends because they lived in the same town. And um, they met when they were both married and they were both um, part of couples. He's now divorced and a single dad and her husband has died, but they've remained very close. I just think those kinds of friendships are incredibly important. When we were talking about the acknowledgments, 
those kinds of friendships are incredibly important in my in my own life. And I really wanted there to be a relationship of great significance that wasn't part of her romantic life. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Linda Holmes from National Public Radio, uh, talking about her new, her new novel, her first novel, uh, called Evie Drake Starts Over. It tells the story of a widow named Evie Drake uh, and of the uh, professional baseball player down on his luck, his career has imploded, uh, who has come to live in the apartment that's kind of at the back of this sprawling house in which she now uh, lives alone. And uh, it is about the relationship that ultimately springs up uh, between them, not to not to imply it's necessarily a romantic relationship. It's a complicated, highly textured relationship uh, that uh, that grows slowly over time. Um, <laughs> I wanted to tell you about a kind of a amusing moment I had when I was uh, reading the book now. This is about halfway through, I think, in chapter thirteen. So by this point, this uh, this this ball player has uh, been living there in in Maine for quite some time, and uh, at some point, uh, uh, an essay is written called "Toward the Philosophy of Failure," which uh-huh. runs in the magazine uh, Esquire, and uh, this article is is quoted at one point. And it's, it's kind of a profile of failure in a sense of different examples of failure. And when it gets to the story of this ballplayer, Dean Tenney, uh, it finishes this way. Tenney is not a pitcher anymore. He is now a bogeyman fantasy. He is a living, breathing, worst-case scenario for anyone who has achieved any level of success. This is the story in which all your hard work turns out to mean nothing. This is the story in which your life, for no apparent reason, becomes the draft of a book that's no longer being written, abandoned at a table without even a final word. I read those words, and I immediately thought to myself, that is really good. I wonder where she found that or where she got that. And then, of course, in the next second, I realized you wrote that just like you wrote the rest of the novel. That's not excerpted from some article uh, that actually appeared no. in Esquire, but it, it occurred. I'm only admitting that kind of ridiculous moment because it it speaks to the fact that this is not the only time in the novel when we are treated to an excerpt from uh, an article that someone has supposedly written about Dean Tenney, yeah. and you have to, uh, in a sense, adopt a slightly different voice as, as a writer. Can you just talk yeah. for a moment about that challenge? Yeah, I think in the case of that particular piece, what that is getting at, I think, I wanted to touch on how difficult I think it is for people who are in the public eye when something like this happens, because I think very often, um, you know, writers will use the stories of real people, and there's nothing wrong with this necessarily, but will use the stories of real people as ways to kind of wax philosophical about life in a way that's not meant to be malicious. That, That writer thinks that they're only describing what has happened and kind of what the broader meaning of it is and how people are responding to it. But it does have an effect on an individual human being to have their life turned into a, a, a lesson and a, a kind of a moral moment for other people. So for me, it, it, I've read so much magazine writing and so much profile writing that, it, that particularly at least for, for limited periods of time, 
um, I can kind of mimic that voice a little bit the way that you might mimic a, a, a you know, someone's accent or, or manner of speaking. Um, I can, I can slip into to magazine writer voice uh, a little bit at times. <laughs> <laughs> you do it very well, very, very persuasively. I want to ask you another kind of nuts and bolts question. Uh, fairly early in the novel as, uh, Ballplayer Dean Tenney is is getting settled. I think it's I forget if it's a month or two into his time there in mm-hmm. this little town in Maine. Uh, the local high school, I think, football coach, Coach Finch, yeah. pays mm-hmm. him a visit and uh, invites him to uh, come to the school and and talk to his his young players. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I I love this touch of the story. But what I want to specifically ask you about is the fact that we're never shown that scene in the locker room where right. he actually talks to the young athletes and we have no idea what what he said we we eventually get the idea that it must have gone pretty well because he ends up having kind of an ongoing relationship with that school and some of the teams mm-hmm. there but it it occurs to me that one of the most important decisions that you make as an author is what's on these pages what is in this book and what is left to our imagination. Uh, can you take yeah. us inside that process of making those kinds of choices about which scenes actually play out and which ones uh, we are left to, in a sense, imagine? I think that's a. I think that's very astute. And I think that's something that I dealt with a lot was trying to figure out where to put the focus, particularly because this book takes place over the course of about a year and a half. And so there's a lot of time that's passing and there are a lot of people whose relationships and, and, and lives, you know, at least something about. And I think you do learn over time that you just have to try to put the focus on the pieces that the reader needs to see to understand what happened. And I think in this case, for example, when you see the coach explain what he wants from Dean and when you have seen enough of Dean to know what he's like, that he's a kind of a good-natured, fun, down-to-earth kind of guy, you can kind of understand what he would probably say to these kids. And uh, and I think when you get the, the, as you said, later you kind of get a sense of how it's gone and that he gets along with these kids, that it was less important to show the actual kind of locker room talk than it was to show other things that might be happening that would be a little bit more surprising or a little more detailed. But that's definitely something that we went back and forth about in the editing process. It was, you know, do you need to see this scene versus can this person describe um, what has already happened? Right. Um, And I just, I just think that's part of the mechanics of listening really carefully to the editor and and trusting them because a lot of times as the writer you want to write everything. Right. I also want to ask you about the very last line of that particular chapter. It's chapter 10 where this coach Finch has come to uh, Dean Tenney and very politely asked him to come speak to his guys even though Dean Tenney's not a former football player. The little football he played apparently didn't play it all that well but coach Finch nevertheless thinks he has something uh, very valuable he might be able to share with the students. And you end the, the chapter this way. Dean had played for an awful lot of coaches, and Coach Finch of the Calcasset High School Talks was the first one who'd ever come to him for a favor and called it a favor. Hard to say no. 
I'm really intrigued by those words. Uh, what prompted you to uh, point out that fact? The, and w- w- what is behind that notion of, of this being the first time someone asked him for a favor and called it a favor? You know, I think what I was thinking about there was that um, he's in a moment where he, it would be very easy for him to just say, I don't want to have anything to do with um, sports. I don't want to have anything to do with talking about my career. But he's really struck by having somebody be willing to say, um, you could really help me here. And I think when he's been a star athlete for as long as he has been, it doesn't come off in that vulnerable way from people anymore very often because he's been, you know, he's been, as I said, he's been a star, he's been an asset. And then people kind of treat you like an asset. Um, And I think he feels the, the significance of someone coming to him kind of person to person and saying, can you do this for me as a favor? Come and talk to my, come and talk to my guys because I think they would really benefit from hearing from you. Right. And it's interesting. I remember feeling really nervous for this Dean Tenney. I mean, by that point, we like him so much. He's such a likable character, uh, especially because of his his brokenness. And uh, mm-hmm. we want this to go well. And uh, and I feel like a lesser novelist might have then created some awful scenario. And uh, and and in fact, as, as, as we've already kind of said, it, it in fact apparently goes goes very very well as as it almost certainly would have would this play out in real life yeah well and it's part of him finding what's the next thing for him and he winds up being really drawn to to at least in the short term to working with kids whether it's that it doesn't have to be baseball but working with kids who are athletes because a lot of stuff in in high school athletics kind of carries over from sport to sport and it's, it's a matter of him saying, what's next for me? What is my next move going to be? And what am I interested in doing now that I'm not going to be a superstar athlete anymore? And for people who have had their careers end after um, being struck by the yips, this is one of the things that they've sometimes done is they go into coaching or teaching. Hmm. I also want to be sure to ask you about how well you describe a couple of brief moments in the book in which the title character, Evie Drake, who all along the way is wrestling with all kinds of difficult and complicated feelings about all kinds of things in her life, and then very complicated feelings about this strapping uh, ex-professional athlete who is suddenly living at the back of her house. I mean, as she tries to navigate all that, at a couple of different points in the book, she actually sees a therapist. And yes. uh, I really appreciate how how authentic uh, this encounter feels. And I want to ask you just about a couple of things. One of them is uh, kind of talking about uh, the silence that is sometimes part of those encounters. And in one of her visits to this therapist, she talks about a cooperative science, a silence that mm-hmm. is sort of in, in the air between them. Uh, can you just say a word about uh, what kind of an intriguing notion that is? I think that when you're in therapy, and I say this as somebody who's been in therapy a lot, I think that um, I think particularly when you're new to therapy, you expect the therapist to to lead, and some therapists do lead, but many therapists, if you begin to talk and then you stop in the middle of what you're saying 
they don't step in and ask you a question or um, or or prompt you. They will let you sit quietly and it will first be awkward and then it will become intentional. And then you're just kind of sitting there and they're waiting for what you want to say next. And I think it requires you, I think that's where you begin to kind of take the responsibility for your therapy. And I, I thought it was really important for her to go to therapy because as we were talking about before, these are conflicts that are internal and, and emotional and they don't come from an external force. And so I think if an, if a conflict is internal and emotional, then it would be unrealistic to suggest that, you know, at the end of it, just suddenly she feels better. I think often those things require some outside help. Right. And especially when someone is deeply masking their most authentic selves. I mean, right. Evie Drake spends most of this book, in a sense, hiding the most authentic of her emotions. We only know them because they spring off the page to us as the reader. But right. she is sharing almost none of the deepest part of her soul with those around her. Right. And I and I think that, that contrary to what a certain number of, of love stories will imply, usually meeting a new person does not by itself resolve whatever else is going on with you. Um, it can be enough, as I think it is for her, the potential to create this relationship is one of the things that makes her want to deal with all this stuff and makes her want to see if she can kind of get, get it clearer in her own mind. Mm. But, um, you know, meeting him does not, does not replace therapy. And I think that's something that I definitely wanted to write about. Right. I love the moment when, uh, she sort of figures out, uh, and it is through therapy. Uh, she figures out that one of the things, uh, that, caused a, a, a rupture uh, with her good friend Andy was what the therapist called grieving the first call. Yeah. Would you mind explaining to our listeners what those words mean and if this is something that in a sense you came up with or if, is this something that <laughs> that uh, has been said before by other therapists, not just in your fictional novel? Um, so the concept of grieving the first call is... Um, you know, Evie and Andy have been friends for a really long time, and they both, over the course of this novel, have the the possibility emerge of maybe getting into new romantic relationships. And so one of the things that she experiences is that she does feel um, a little bit threatened because she does feel the loss of some loss of intimacy that comes from um, not being kind of the primary person that he comes to when he has problems with his kids or whatever. And so she she's not it's not romantic jealousy. It's just um, it's just feeling the the presence of someone else in what's been a very close relationship. And I think that's very, very natural and normal. And what she tells Dean late in the book is that her therapist calls this grieving the first call because you're not the first call that the person would make anymore. And if you have been the first call, you know, if something happened, the person had a car accident, the person you know, had something wonderful happen, you would be the first person that they called because you're their best friend. And if they get into a relationship with someone else, that person's going to be the first call as they should be. And that dealing with that is, it is okay that some part of you may feel sad about that or may feel some sense of loss. And that is something that I, 
that comes from me. That that does not come from. Uh, it, it's very much something that I think my therapist would say, <laughs> <laughs> and and certainly that I think my therapist would approve. But um, but no, as as such, it comes from me. Hmm. Well, <laughs> that's a really brilliant insight. Uh, I mean, I think that is also something that plays out in almost everyone's life at at mm-hmm. one point or another, and uh, it's and it, it's probably the source of tremendous pain without us even understanding exactly where that pain is coming from. So I, I so appreciate that that is there. Um, yeah, well, and, and Evie, Evie says in the book that it also can happen, for example, if you're a parent as your kid is growing up or going to college um, or graduating, you're not necessarily the first person that they're going to call anymore, and that that's sad too. Absolutely. Well, I so appreciate the sort of uneven texture of this novel and uh, and the fact that uh, in some ways it feels like a very natural evolution of, of, of relationships, for instance, and yet it's bumpy enough that it feels much more like real life than sort of the plastic world of, of, uh, of fiction as we uh, often experience it. I wonder, as you were crafting this novel, and particularly as you were really finishing it, uh, how much were you thinking about yourself as a highly regarded critic? And as you were writing this novel, did you ever, in a sense, try to shift gears into uh, your 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 critic half <laughs> and and sort of examining this book as though you were a critic uh, yeah. who would respond to it in that way? Is that something you ever consciously did, or perhaps unconsciously? I don't think I don't think you can consciously get enough distance from your own work to think of it the way that a critic would. But I do think that, um, you know, the the great amount of time that I have spent trying to figure out what I like and don't like in stories and what works for me and doesn't work certainly influenced the direction of the book. There are certainly things that are in the book or not in the book that are things that I have liked or not liked about other pieces of art um, over the time that I've been a critic. So it's influential in that way. But I think that the the equivalent of kind of putting on my own critic hat was working either with, you know, friends who would read the manuscript for me and give me feedback or working with an editor. Because I don't think I could ever have enough, as I said, I don't think I could ever have enough distance from it to see it the way that I would see it if I were, if I were, if it were not mine. Well, it's a marvelous novel. And I wonder the fact that it is so well received. Uh, have you given very much thought to uh, more novels in your future or folding this kind of writing into a more prominent place uh, in your professional life? Or is it premature to be even uh, 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 entering, uh, entertaining such a notion? Uh, I definitely will be writing more uh, novels. Um, I, I have plans to do that. Um, in terms of kind of the, the way that this all fits with my my uh my job that i still have uh it's really this is all really new right now and i think everybody's still trying to figure out uh what is this like i'm still very much working through what does this mean for me and 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 how is this, how does this change or not change my my future it's a it's a really it's a wonderful thing to have a completely disorienting moment when you're, you know, when you're 48. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. As problems go, it's just about the loveliest problem that one can have. 
It absolutely <laughs> is. It absolutely is. It is It is nothing to complain about, but it is very disorienting. Mm. Well, the novel, once again, is Evie Drake Starts Over. It's published by Ballantine Books and the author, Linda Holmes. Linda Holmes, I congratulate you on an absolutely superb novel. I really, really loved it, and I also very much enjoyed this opportunity to talk with you about it. Very, very best wishes, whatever uh, stretches ahead for you. And thank you again for being part of the morning show. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight.